Okay, let's open up one final time, at least for this round, to Matthew chapter 18, if you'll join me there. Matthew 18. I'm going to read where we left off last time. When you get there, if you'll stand, Matthew 18, we'll read just a handful of verses out of there again. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. Moreover, if thy brethren shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's pray one more time. Father, every one of us and of ourselves are beggars when it comes to spiritual things. Grace doesn't reside with us. Wisdom doesn't reside with us. Charity doesn't reside with us. We can't even understand this text, Lord, just by human brains alone. Father, we thank you that you delight to give. Not only are you willing, but it's your pleasure to give us bread to feed our souls. We ask you would you do so this morning, even with this difficult text. Prepare us for the joyous warfare that lays ahead of us. A pathway that's strewn with blessings and goodness and sunshine, but also valleys and temptations and trials and deception. Make us more fitted soldiers in thy army. Father, help me to be consciously dependent upon your power to do your work this morning. And take this text and the others that will be read and use them for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Lord willing, and I really do mean it this time, this is going to be our last message on the topic, understanding and exercising biblical forgiveness. I trust this has been time well spent. I hope these things can stick with us. And uh, we're going to just kind of jump back in to right where we finished last time, which was two weeks ago, last time I was here and healthy. And we're basically discussing a most unpleasant but absolutely necessary topic, and that is what's commonly called church discipline. There's a lot to it. I know to many it's a taboo subject. Uh, you want to talk about something unpopular in the, uh, the grace, falsely grace-minded contemporary church movement. To them, church discipline uh, belongs in the same era as wooden chariot wheels and battering rams and a flat earth. It's something we don't need anymore. It's cute. People used to do that, but we've Graduated beyond that. May I remind us all, we're never going to graduate beyond the words of Christ written in this book so long as we have breath on this planet Earth. The Lord is sovereign and omniscient. And He had this age and this country in mind when He spoke these very words, and we depart from them uh, to our own demise. It's necessary to understand this topic if we actually believe and obey the Word of God. It's also necessary 
if we're going to have a proper handle on the Bible doctrine of forgiveness. And what we're dealing with is a whole litany of the what-ifs. Of course, we've discussed forgiveness and what it is and how to exercise it in the different realms. And now we're kind of walking through, all right, but what about when there's a breakdown? That sounds nice, that's wonderful, but we all know it doesn't always work that way. So what do we do next? What's plan B? Now, when I say plan B, I don't, I don't mean try it differently than what the Lord says. But the Lord gives us plan B for when the proper cycle of confrontation and repentance does not work on the first attempt. He tells us what to do next. He doesn't leave us up to just trying to guess or to read Dr. Phil. Thank God we have inspired words on this topic uh, what if a person refuses to repent? That's where we left off last time. And of course, we walked through that. The pressure kind of escalates. It's supposed to. God's ordained it that way. It's not supposed to just be left at that point. And of course, if a person in that context refuses to repent, the Lord says, let them be unto you as a heathen man and a publican. And we spent some time talking about what that does not mean. That doesn't mean they're now a worthless piece of garbage. It doesn't mean we hate their guts. That doesn't mean we look at them with scorn and disdain. I mean, how do you treat, again, a heathen man and a publican? They're not allowed to make decisions in the local assembly. They're not welcome to take the communion table, although I'm not going to run out and slap it out of their hand. But I certainly warn on that account every time we take the communion table. It means their judgment is called into question. It means as members of the church, if you're involved in this kind of situation as unpleasant and as horrible as it is, you are required that your future communication with a person in this state is restorative in nature. God expects you to not act like everything's fine. It's not fine. It doesn't mean you're rude. Neither does it mean we just drop it and go bass fishing and act like nothing happened. Something serious did happen. I mentioned it also means don't get sucked into their side of things. By the way, maybe you'll remember the statement I said at the beginning last time. One of the greatest enemies to this whole process is personal sentiment. Particularly if you're a compassionate person, God bless you, stay compassionate. But your natural bent is going to be to fight a passage like this. And I want to remind us all, I guarantee you, there's not a person sitting here this morning that is more loving than Jesus Christ who spoke these words. There's not a single person here this morning that has a better idea how to run His church than Jesus Christ. Let's not forget who the head is. It's not me, it's not you. Nor is it the best-selling books down at the religious bookstore. Christ is the authority. Now don't get sucked into their side of things, meaning you have to understand after it's been dealt with on a church level, a rebel's always going to have their own twisted side. You should expect that. That's how human nature works. Tell me, look back at your own life. Have any of you ever been wrong? And uh, people were telling you you were wrong? And you refused to admit you were wrong? What did you always have ready on your lips? A justification for the way you were going. That's how the deceitfulness of sin works. Don't get pulled into it. 
Now, we ended with that fearful statement in verse 18. I'm telling you, as a pastor, I read that and almost tremble at those words. He's not talking merely to the, to the apostles. This is the continuity of church, local church authority that he's given. And he says, whatsoever in the context of saying, there are heathen men and a publican unto you, what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. I lack the words to explain the gravity of what I just read. That means the Lord of heaven puts great weight on the careful, prayerful decisions of the local assembly, including a small one in Helena, Montana, who's trying to do his will. That means the decisions, the difficult decisions in this forum that have to be made by a real legitimate New Testament church are backed up in the courts of heaven. Is it a light thing to ignore that? No, it's not. I made mention of it last time. I want to cover this quickly. Not just from this passage. What are some of the reasons for churches being commanded to handle these situations in this manner? And there's uh, the New Testament has a lot to say about it. I don't have time to elaborate. If you're a note taker, you can jot down the references. I'm not going to turn probably to any of these. Why are we commanded to handle things this way? Let me give you some of the New Testament reasons. Number one is actually, uh, these aren't in order of importance, okay? Number one on my list. Number three should actually be number one. Number one, to protect the purity of the church. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul's talking about this man living in open, scandalous sin. And one of the things he tells him is, Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Certain types of sin spread like a cancer to protect the purity of the assembly. Sometimes the cancer has to be cut out to maintain a good testimony before an unbelieving community. First Corinthians five one, First Peter two nine through twelve. Friends, I realize the popularity in our day of thinking Christians should look just like the culture around them. If you think that you've not been conformed or transformed to the image and thinking of God, you've been conformed by this world. Friends, Christians are different by design. We are called to be holy as He is holy. That's our primary aim and ambition. Our goal is not merely to fit in. Yes, to fit in as much as possible. To be effective to preach the gospel. That's one side of this. But not to be so worried that somebody might accuse you of being different. You should be different. Your thought processes, your speech, your motivations, your goals, your view of heaven and hell and eternity and God and sin is different. The core of your being has been regenerated. We are to maintain a pure testimony before a watching world. A thirdly, which should be first, to please and glorify the Lord. The highest reason. 1 Corinthians 5.4, Titus 2.14. We want to honor God. How about this one? To restrain sin. We're going to talk more about God's three major institutions in a little bit, because that has to do with another part of this discussion. But when God ordains a certain institution, family, government, church... 
All of those are means for a lot of things, but all of them have authority and discipline inherent in those. And as sin progressed in the world system, uh, conscience wasn't enough, so God added human government, and then He added the law to bring men to Christ in the New Testament times. The primary institution, if you want to call it that, is a New Testament church. And one function of the church, like it or not, is to help to restrain sin in the world. Now, what's going to bring in the total apostasy in the days of the Antichrist? It's the rapture when the church is removed, and he who now lets or restrains the Holy Spirit is taken away with the church, and you might say all hell breaks loose on earth because the restraining influence is gone. And now the world thinks they have total freedom. Sometimes freedom's not so free, is it? I'm going to read you a statement. I think it's an excellent statement by Paul Jackson. He wrote The Doctrine and Administration of the Church. Now listen to this. He's talking about the church restraining evil. He says, It would be ideal if men could be encouraged to live godly lives without any warning of judgment upon ungodliness. Isn't that true? It'd be nice if we never had to talk about warnings. But to suppose they will do so is idealistic and contrary to all observation as well as to Scripture. God warns of impending judgment and says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because there is wrath, beware. If sin goes unjudged in a church, we are, we are thereby inviting others to become self-indulgent. It will not do to plead love as a basis for neglect. God does not put love and punishment in opposition to each other. He says, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. The church has a solemn responsibility to restrain sin by proper discipline. If we do not exercise the judgment, the Lord will. It's absolutely correct. To somebody who actually pays attention to the New Testament. You know something this morning? Look around. This is not a rotary club. This is not Girl Scouts of America. This is an organic living body where we are members one of another. Where sin wounds and causes damage. Where we are called to be accountable. We are fellow soldiers under the banner of the same king fighting in the same war. And every one of us prone to wander. Who would raise your hand and say, I don't need accountability? I hope nobody. All right, let's touch on attitude real quick. I'm not even going to mention references. If you want them, you can come talk to me later. I trust you're going to know a lot of these. And uh, we, we went through this in depth when we were talking about contending for the faith and balance a couple months back. But let me just touch on the right attitude in this sort of process. Number one, it's careful. It's not some kind of paranoid witch hunt. Always looking for the next person to put under the wheel of our displeasure. That is a curse. Uh, let's remember the description of charity in 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, It's not looking for this kind of thing. It doesn't create an atmosphere where we're always staring at each other askance and wondering, what are you hiding? That, that can happen to any one of us. It's an attitude of humility. It's in meekness considering self. It's impartial. It's not a respecter of persons. It's mature. 
It understands that we all have weaknesses and blemishes and we're all projects, we're all under construction. It takes into account backgrounds and growth levels and trajectory and uh, real-world understanding of the messy work it takes to fulfill the Great Commission. So there's a maturity to it. It's not hypocritical. It doesn't deal with sin with a telephone pole sticking out of its pupil. It's not majoring on the minors. It's not straining at gnats while swallowing down a truckload of camels. Okay, It puts things in balance. It's compassionate. It's an attitude of mourning and brokenness. I said before, if we can enter into something like this with dry eyes and yawning, we need to repent before we deal with somebody else's sin. The goal. Restoration. It's always a goal. Even when it can't happen. But there's a firmness of purpose. Where we also resolve we're going to do what we have to do. Despite the roller coaster emotional ride it can be. Is that true in your own family? Are there things you have to do whether you feel like it or not? Sure are. How about at work? Are there things you have to do whether you like it or not? How many of you like paying taxes? Oh, in government, there's things you have to do whether you like it or not. Why do we think Christianity, you always have to like everything? You need to obey what the Lord says. And by the way, there's a big difference between honest discipleship issues and a deliberate sinful direction and refusal to repent. Again, we're dealing primarily with a rebellious attitude here. This is not, I don't know any different. Okay, I mean, you could have two people in a church committing the exact same sin. And how you deal with that is going to vary. Because one of them might trench in and say, I know it's wrong, I don't care, I want to do it anyways. And the other person might look at you and say, oh, that's wrong. Yes, you deal with that differently because their attitude is different. Okay, so that's huge to understand. Growth issues are never going to go away this side of eternity. All right, now a question that always comes to mind in this, what specific offenses warrant church discipline? I mean, where do I find a list of things that we can just post on the wall? Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, uh, but the Bible actually doesn't give a specific list. If you take a panorama of this doctrine... Uh, what it does, I would suggest, is give five categories of areas. And I'm going to give them to you quickly. One is unresolved conflict between professing Christians. That's what we just read in Matthew 18. Now that, that spoken by Christ before the church existed, sets the tone for how we deal with most of these things. There's a personal confrontation. You bring one or two more, and then it goes before the church as a general rule. That's what's going to be done. Okay, but that one's talking specifically about unresolved conflict. Uh, number two, you'll find in 1 Corinthians 5, flagrant moral sins. Remember, Paul confronts them and says, you have a guy in the church, a member in good standing, who's living in fornication with his stepmother. I mean, he's just horrified at this. And, uh, of course, the man is warned, and then he's put away. In fact, Paul said, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. How's that for winning friends and influencing people? But friends, look, the leaven had to be put away. 
Okay, so unresolved conflict, flagrant moral sins, doctrinal heresies, that's Titus 3, 10, and 11. A man that's a heretic after the first and second admonition, reject. That one seems to be more handled at the leadership level. Uh, by the way, this isn't talking about somebody who disagrees on a particular doctrinal point, but somebody who persists in major heresy and won't be taught. You talk to them once, they pursue it and go after it again, willfully, rebelliously, stubbornly, not talking about time spent discipleship, different attitude. No, I'm going this way, period. You reason with them again. You give them three chances, and you lovingly see there's, say there's the door. I'm sorry, but don't let it hit you on the way out. I don't like that verse very much, I'll be honest with you. I don't. But there's going to be times this happens. Causing division in the church. Romans 16, 17. At the end of that, remember that magnificent epistle? And, and Paul's going through his concluding remarks and he says, I beseech you, I beg you, mark them. Publicly identify those that cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Divisions of schisms. Uh, causing controversy within the church on an ongoing basis. So after attempts to deal with it, he said they're identified. People are warned. Don't follow their pathway. Let me give you. Let me just give you a practical example. They may maybe have used this one before, but I think it's one that's going to come across today. I mean, is everybody who walks through the door going to believe 100% of our doctrinal statement? Not everybody. Uh, you know, we teach the rapture here, the pre-tribulation rapture. Let's say somebody comes through the door and they come to me and they say, I don't believe that. I'm not going to tell them to leave. I'm going to say, you can have your own private belief, but just know this is what we teach here. Don't make it an axe to grind. End of discussion. That's it. In fact, I would be able to discuss that very cordially, to be honest with you. That's not the gospel. Okay, Different level of importance, although it's important. Let's say that same person I find out in a month's time, they're starting a Bible study at their home. They're inviting people of the church besides me uh, to have a discussion every week on why our church is wrong, not to, uh, teaching the rapture. Okay, now I'm going to go to them and say, all right, now you're out of bounds. You know what we believe. You know where we stand. Now you're causing sectarianism. And I'm telling you, if it doesn't stop now, it's going to be dealt with publicly. You see the difference? One is a private belief. One is knowingly causing discord. That's no light thing either. Unresolved conflict, flagrant moral sins, heresy, causing division. In fact, we'll turn to this one. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 3. This one sort of covers a whole litany of other possibilities. 2 Thessalonians 3. Second Thessalonians 3, notice verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, <clears throat> not suggest, we command, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the traditions which he received of us. Disorderly means not keeping rank. Now listen, that doesn't mean that they hold a different standard. That doesn't mean that you don't see eye to eye on everything. That doesn't mean that we're all going to 100% agree like a bunch of robots. That's not what he's saying. 
But he's saying somebody who's deliberately pushing a course that is a flagrant reproach to the name of Christ on a consistent basis in the community, take notice of that and what it shows to the world when you hobnob with them like everything's fine. And in reality, what they're causing the world to do is think less of Christ when our primary calling is to make them think right of Christ. Now, what was happening in Thessalonica? It's a rather interesting thing. They had eschatology problems, end times understanding. There were those in the church who said, you know what? Jesus is coming soon. Wait a minute, we say that. Okay? But because Jesus was coming so soon, uh, why should I waste my time working? Why, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to wait for Him. Aren't I spiritual? I'm heavenly minded. But wait a minute, the bills haven't quit coming and Matter of fact, I'm still hungry. And so now these spiritual people that were too spiritual to work because Jesus was coming, now they're a bunch of mooches in the assembly leeching off the kindness of the people who are trying to help the brethren. And uh, now that they have time to do this, they're gossips and tattletales and busybodies causing dissension. I imagine Paul had come to them and they said, wait a minute. We believe in the imminency of Christ. The problem's all yours. Paul says, no. What you're doing is causing the world to think poorly of Christianity. You're out of line. The rest of you, if they don't repent, you stay away from them. That is not Christianity. Christianity is not a lazy man's religion. You see why he's dealing with this? Because... Doctrinal problems are invariably going to lead to practical problems, which is what they were doing wrong. Okay, so what does he say? Jump ahead. Uh, verse 11. We hear that there are some, some which walk among you disorderly. There's that word again, working not at all, but are busybodies. What does he say? We command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Simple enough. Go get a job. Pay your bills. And keep your mouth shut. Doesn't mean don't talk, but he's saying stop talking about things you shouldn't talk about. Pretty basic. That was their chance. Are you going to fix it or not? Some probably did. Some probably had to go to the next level, unfortunately. Look at verse uh, 14. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. You see that reasoning? And by the way, this isn't talking about a professing unbeliever. That wouldn't make any sense. He's talking about a professing Christian who refuses on a consistent basis, stubbornly rebels and refuses to live in a manner that befits Christianity. Not just a growth issue. This is a deliberate choice. And uh, do what? What does he say? Note that man. Take notice of him. Have no company. What's the reason given? That he may be ashamed. How's that one run on your personal sentiments? But look at the balance. Look at verse 15. It's still done kindly. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You see, there's a balance between showing him his error and saying you can't be close with him right now because of how he's portraying Christ. Neither does he belong in the bottom of your shoe. Neither is he worthless. He's admonished, not lectured. 
Now friends, listen, there's no specific list given. In short, anything that causes ongoing division won't deal with interpersonal conflict. Doctrinal heresies, schisms and divisions and problems in the church or a public reproach to the name of Christ is something that can eventually be handled this way and should be. How about some practical examples? Let's say you have a, say you have a husband, member of the church, won't support his family. He just wants to sit there and watch football and eat cheese puffs. Let his wife run the show. All the money he gets, he spends on playing with the boys. He won't man up and take care of his home. That should be dealt with. Well, you have a young person, teenager, flagrantly rebellious against their parents. Just disrespectful and godly attitude. That should be dealt with. How about you have a businessman in the church? The growing reputation for dishonesty. He's a shyster. You keep getting reports about people getting ripped off. That should be dealt with. So you have a wife who refuses to submit to her husband. Constant excuses, constant decision, constant rebellion. That should be dealt with. Somebody who's ongoing, causing problems in the church. I mean, as soon as one fire is put out, another one rises up, and they're always in the middle of it. That has to be dealt with. Do you get what I'm saying? These kind of things, you could just go on all day with practical examples. So there's guidelines, there's categories given. But we have to do something about it. By the way, somebody who attends long-term particular church and refuses to repent of major sin while they're attending long-term, I realize they're not members, but I'm not buying that as an excuse. Do you know why? People in the community don't ask, what church are you going to? Oh, are you an official member? They just ask the first question. And if somebody is perceived as being an integral part of this church, whether member or not, and they have a scandalous reputation in the community, I don't really care if they're not a member, they're going to be dealt with. They have to be. And if you think I enjoy this, boy, do you not know reality. This is God's Word, not mine. Now, sadly, what happens most of the time? They go down the street. They take their rebellion with them. They go to another church. That's the norm. By the way, if somebody comes here and they're new, and they're under church discipline somewhere else, number one, I would expect in Christian integrity they would come and tell me that. And number two, if that's the case, I'm calling that church and that pastor. Do you know why? Because I don't want that sinful, rebellious attitude coming and defiling this place. I'm going to encourage you to go deal with it back there. You're welcome to come here after that, but don't come here to run from sin 
or to run from repenting of sin. All that does is defile another church that doesn't deal with the problem. Just multiplies it. It's like trying to put out a forest fire by taking a hot ember from over here and throwing it in a dry forest over there. Well, that worked, didn't it? No, now we have two fires. Shouldn't be that way. What can a person in rebellion against a local church expect if they are saved? As according to the passage we just read, there's going to be a sense of shame. On purpose. Do we get that? There's going to be a continual weight of conviction, the sense of wandering in the wilderness, of not belonging anywhere else. Sadly, a lot of times that's blamed on everybody but themselves. There'll be this internal nagging vexation, this escalating pressure from the Lord Himself from being out of fellowship with Him. They might find peace is fleeting. It doesn't remain. And the Lord's discipline is going to come, whatever form that may take. You and I don't know the method, the timing, the execution. That's not our business. But friends, that can include the destruction of the flesh. Have you ever thought about those fearful words in 1 Corinthians 5? Now granted, this guy's sin was public, sexual, scandalous, disgusting, horrific stuff. And the whole community knew it. This wasn't just your run-of-the-mill struggle. But Paul said, put him away. Put away this wicked person. And then here's what he said. He is being delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved. Uh, Paul considered this man a Christian. But did you hear that first part? There's a protection at being under the headship of a local assembly. That when somebody says, no, I want my way, they remove themselves from that umbrella. Now evidently the forces of darkness are sometimes given free reign to tear them apart. Again, that's not my department to say who, when, how, what. That's God's business. But friends, the terrifying reality is there's a protection in the local assembly that God gives that He will remove when we rebel against that. It's a scary thing. Alright, going back to our list of what-ifs though, quickly. What if a person refuses to grant forgiveness? We go through the cycle and Somebody repents of their sin. Somebody says, I I don't forgive you. I'm not. Well, really, it's the same in nature of what we just discussed. There's still a refusal to deal with sin. Repentance has happened. Somebody says, I'll never forgive them. Well, first of all, you have to determine, do they understand the difference between rebuilding trust and refusing to forgive? I mean, this can be a subject of one-on-one meetings. Hey, I noticed you're not forgiving. Why? Here's the command. Uh, Maybe this person doesn't know what forgiveness is. Maybe it's an instruction issue. Maybe they don't know it's a matter of the will. But when all that fails, ultimately, what happens? A refusal to forgive and a refusal to repent are treated the same way. The pressure's increased until it's dealt with. How about God's three institutions? I mentioned these. I'm going to talk about them quickly. That He's ordained. You have family, government, church. 
right, in that order of chronology. Family's given in the Garden of Eden. Noah gets off the ark. We find the institution of human government primarily in the, in the area of capital punishment. That was given to restrain sin. And then, of course, the New Testament. You have the New Testament church. You could throw Israel in there as a theocracy, but, but they've been temporarily set aside, so those other three still remain. How about government? Well, these principles actually can apply in taking somebody before the law. Let's say you loan your neighbor your horse. He paints your horse a different color and says he's not giving it back. What are you going to do? Well, you can still go talk to him alone. So, uh, <clears throat> I, st- I know that's my horse. I mean, what, what's the deal? You know, I'm not giving it back. Maybe you can include more in the conversation. I'm not giving it back. What are you going to do? You're probably going to eventually go before the law. Why? Because the law is the sphere in which this has to be dealt with. It's not a church issue because that guy's not part of the church. Uh, it, by the way, is it wrong to sue somebody? Not all the time. Not all lawsuits are wrong. There's legitimate ones, lots of them. Uh, friends, that may just be bringing in the sphere that has to be brought in. Let's say tomorrow morning you go out to get in your car. And you know, funny thing, right where your car was parked, there's just broken glass and skid marks. Uh, are you going to instantaneously forgive and then go car shopping? No. You're going to dial three numbers, and I bet you know what they are, and have a talk with a man in a uniform, because the church isn't going to fix this problem. The guy with the badge and the gun is going to fix the problem, right? Okay, so that's, that's in that realm. Uh, now, <clears throat> we don't even need to turn there. I'll just reference it. 1 Corinthians 6. You remember, Paul's shocked at Corinth. Here's these Christians are suing each other within the church. And he says, dare you, having a matter against another, go to the law? You go before the unbelievers? What's wrong with your thinking? Why was he reacting that way? Basically, what he's communicating is, out in the world with somebody who's not in the church, yes, you have to deal with that, but you're under the local assembly, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Don't you know you're going to judge angels someday? Can't you mitigate between two Christians in the same church? And of course, what does he say? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? You see, a financial dispute between two Christians in an assembly, the default mechanism there is, I'm willing to let them have more. That's a godly attitude. The godly attitude is willing to suffer themselves to be defrauded rather than go take a Christian before the law. Now, there's all kinds of discussion. Does this count with a Christian across the country in a different church? I personally, I don't think I could sue a Christian person, whether they live in Zimbabwe or they're here in the same church. I don't think my conscience would allow me to. Okay, But outside of the church, you see, it's different. That one's handled under the realm of government. Uh, outside the church, the government may need to be the authority involved. By the way, law-breaking within the church. Let's say somebody comes to me. Friends, listen, this has happened a lot in recent years. Somebody comes to the pastor and says, Hey, uh... So-and-so's been molesting children. And they try to go to Matthew 18 to deal with it. That's not happening here. I will go to that person and say, listen, here's the accusation. I'm calling the police as soon as this conversation's over. If you run, you look guilty. But I'm going to the law now. 
It's a bad idea to try to keep that one in-house. You talk about public reproach in the name of Christ. That's happened a lot. No, 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 no. Escalating sphere. That's government needs to deal with that. That's criminal. All right, now what about an immediate family? First of all, the same principle of increasing pressure can be used within a family. You have a conflict between children. You ought to be teaching your children, go to the offender first before you come tattle. As a general rule, I know there's things that are going to come to you, but as a general rule, say, hey, how to go and you talk to them? Our children get asked that all the time. So-and-so took my, how to go and you talk to them? I have it. Well, sounds like you need to handle that one first. Okay, because what you're doing is teaching proper conflict resolution. And of course, it can escalate. Parents get involved. Turn to 1 Peter 3 with me. Let me just point out a few principles in this note from this. 1 Peter 3. Maybe you know where I'm going with this. 1 Peter 3. I think this has a lot to do with this discussion. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation, the lifestyle of the wives. By the way, that statement, obey not the word, is left general on purpose. Uh, This could be a husband who is lost, or in some major area, refuses to conform his life to the Scriptures. He could be a disobedient Christian, he could be a mere professing Christian, but let's say you've got a husband and wife and some controversy comes up. He refuses to repent. Uh, She brings in outside help. She brings in one or two more, and they look at it and say, yes, you need to deal with this sin. He refuses to repent. Now you have a meeting with the entire church who tells them unilaterally, you're in error, you need to repent of your sin. Maybe he doesn't show up at the meeting. Maybe he thumbs his nose at these worthless hypocrites and bigots and everybody else, and he just, he leaves. So effectively, this guy is now under church discipline, unfortunately, until he deals with a sin. Where does his wife fit into this? What does the text say? Be in subjection to your own husbands. If any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Should she keep bringing it up? Should she keep beating him over the head with it? Nagging? Walking around with a spiritual holy little pout? Should she withhold physical affection? Read 1 Corinthians 7. Absolutely not. What does the text say? Be in subjection. By the way, let me give another aside in case you're wondering. I don't think that's the case of physical abuse. Wife comes to me and says, my husband's beating me. I'm not going to say, go submit. There is exceptions for separation in a case like that, for physical safety, okay, just so you know that. But as a general rule, on one hand, she can't say, I promise to never bring that offense up again, right? Repentance hasn't happened. She can't say, I forgive you for that, I'll never bring it up again. However, his failure does not free her from her duty as wife, nor does it change the bonds of immediate family. 
So here's what I'm saying. The way the sphere of church handles it is commanded to be different than the way an immediate family handles it. In other words, we have a situation like that. I would tell all the members in the future, your contact with them has to be restorative in nature. I would not demand that of his wife. Different sphere. And she can't possibly obey this text and do that. I mean, is she standing for truth if she keeps reminding him of his need to repent? No. What it says is, without the Word. Don't be a continual dropping. Don't preach at him constantly. Don't keep bringing it up. Win him without the Word. And obviously, that's not with a pouty, sulky, stubborn attitude or withholding physical affection as some sort of bargaining chip. That's going to do the exact opposite. But here's the principle I'm getting at. At least as a wife, you can't handle church discipline the same way. You let the church handle that part. But you have to walk in the other sphere God's given you. Which, by the way, existed prior to the church. I think that principle applies with other immediate family members. There may be cases when it's necessary to separate in that way, but I wouldn't say it's mandated the same way as it is in a church level. Okay, they're different spheres. All right, here's where we're going to go. One final point, we will be done, I promise. What about the aftermath? Let's say a major offense has taken place. Time has gone by, or a a moderate offense that feels major. What then? Uh, These situations often do take time. They're not fixed overnight. I mean, often the person under church discipline has this slowly increasing load over time and anxiety until the breaking point happens sometime in the future. By the way, I've heard a number of success stories on that from various quarters. But it usually takes a little while. Now, those uh, examples are not authoritative, but let me show you one that is. Turn to 2 Corinthians 2. While you're turning there, I'll give you the backdrop. Okay, center stage in this discussion is the guy we mentioned from 1 Corinthians 5, the guy living in scandalous uh, fornication with his stepmother. Okay, the church obeyed. They put this man out of the church. And now here we are sometime later, don't know how long, uh, roughly a year, maybe less, maybe more. But now comes this second letter uh, from the Apostle Paul to the troubled church at Corinth. And this guy's situation is uh, brought up again. Remember Paul had said, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. He had to be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. To what degree that happened, we're not told. You remember originally, what did he tell them when they were proud of letting the sin go? He said, you guys are puffed up. You're proud of the fact that you think sin is not a big deal. Okay, so now they deal with it. But what's happening here in uh, 2 Corinthians? Now they won't forgive him. I mean, the same group that was puffed up and wouldn't deal with the sin, now is entrenched the other way and says, well, forget it, we're not going to accept him back around here. We're too spiritual for that guy. I think one thing that shows us, our natural tendency is to not be very balanced in this. And really, Paul has to jump to one side of their extreme and push them, and then jump to the other side of their extreme and push them. And now we're in the middle of the highway in 2 Corinthians 2. So, what had happened? 
Uh, by the way, is the tendency to not deal with sin or the tendency not to forgive? Which one's destructive? Both are destructive. Alright, look at verse 7. Contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. I mean, this guy's just buried in his grief. He's got this nagging, plaguing sense of guilt ever since he refused to repent. And now he's returned to the church, he's dealt with the sin, and at least some of them are saying, we don't buy it. Now look at verse 6. Sufficient to such a man is this, what's that next word? Punishment. You mean Paul says the local church punishes sometimes? What does it say? The church handed out this guy punishment. Friends, listen, is punishment fun? How many of you kids love being disciplined? They take me to the woodshed today, right? No! God's woodshed's not very fun either. Can I tell you that? It's not supposed to be. They don't give away free ice cream cones in the woodshed. Serious business. I mean, maybe, uh, what's Paul saying though? He said that the punishment, he said it's done its work, it's produced repentance, it's sufficient, the purpose of the punishment's passed, now let's move on. Now maybe some are saying, I I just don't think he means it. I, uh, you know, I'm still hurt and uh, I just, I just, I keep thinking about it every night until I keep, stop thinking about it, I'm not going to forgive him. That's your fault, not his. (laughs) Remember? Maintaining? I mean, the same people who had boasted of their liberality are now boasting and not accepting this guy back. Look what he says in verse 7. You ought to forgive him and comfort him so he's not swallowed up in sorrow. Friends, think of this. There's a danger, first of all, at letting the sin run rampant and not handling it. Paul says, put him out. Now there's an attending danger that right within the local church, the repentant sinner can come back and be buried with sorrow because people will not forgive him. Wow. How about that? Friends, the same church that stands firm for truth and draws a line in the sand for rebels to repent also must stand ready to receive those who do. Here's a principle we're heading towards. Verse 8. I beseech, I beg you, that you would confirm your love toward Him. Catch that? We talked about maintaining forgiveness last time. You think that's important after a major scandalous offense? You think others disciplining their thought processes is important? You bet it is. Friends, how's that done? Love, charity, is an action word. Friends, here's the tendency. After an offense has taken place, depending on the level of the offense... Not you ate too many truffles, but I'm talking about something that hurts. The tendency is to go into Cold War mode. Things are left. I repent. I forgive you. I'm good. You're good. We're good. Have a nice life. Tell me that doesn't happen. Somebody says, but I don't feel like being close to them. You see, this is where the bridge building starts. How do you confirm your love towards somebody? 
by laying there at night and thinking sweet thoughts? Friends, you confirm your love towards them by not leaving the relationship in the passive state. There has to be deliberate attempts to rebuild the broken bridge, especially after a major sin issue. Rebuilding trust in the context of forgiveness, acceptance, comfort, and charity. Love is self-sacrificing, placing my emotions behind my obedience and choosing to serve. Friends, if it's left in Cold War, that's not charity. We've been going through the men's Bible study books. One of the recent lessons was talking about relationships are either active or passive. You let relationships go passive, they're going to deteriorate. How many of you know there's no such thing in cruise, as cruise control in a happy, successful marriage? A happy, successful marriage is an active marriage. Happy, successful friendships are active friendships. Happy, successful forgiveness is an active forgiveness. We talked about David and Absalom last time. You remember Absalom comes back, the king kisses him, and uh, basically saying, I forgive you, I'm not going to execute you. And then the Cold War started. Two years of nothing. Well, Absalom was a fool, but David sure didn't help. Now, I don't know this particular brother in Corinth's name. We're not told, are we? I look forward to meeting him in glory someday. And uh, I'm not going to bring up a sin. There's going to be no need to. It's not a problem anymore. And I'll tell you, I'll be too taken up with the Lord's mercy there to worry about what that guy did. But I just want to close with this plea once again. Number one, that we would be determined as a church to obey all the counsel God. I've been preaching about 19 years. Let me tell you one thing I've observed. A lot of the Lord's people speak glowing words. Oh, we just want preachers to tell us like it is. We want somebody to just give us the Scriptures. We want somebody to cut the fluff. We don't want preacherettes preaching sermonettes to Christianettes. We want, give us the meat, man, until their sin is dealt with. Or until their strong opinion gets run over by the freight train of divine truth. And then the hackles come up. Let me challenge you, friend, when it comes to the Word of God, put your hackles down and leave them down. Because if it runs contrary to you, you're the problem 100% of the time. So number one's a plea to obey all the counsel of God. Secondly, to grow in our determination to be balanced in this war. Charity. Long-suffering. Mercy. Forbearance, kindness. Second Peter 1 in action, adding to your faith, virtue, and knowledge, and temperance. 
godliness, charity. Militancy for truth. Love for the Word of God. Love for Christ over love of anything else. Friends, those don't contradict. Pick up the trowel in one hand. Have a default that you want to build lives. You want to help. You want to restore. You want to guide. You want to be friends. But know that there's times you have to pick up the sword too. We've got to see the whole picture in it. Let's pray. Father, help us to be transformed by the words of this book which are a reflection of Your mind, divinely inspired and preserved for us, perfectly sufficient, giving us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Father, help us as we walk through this barren wasteland, surrounded by every kind of deception and temptation imaginable. Their own flesh conniving to destroy us, a seductive enemy without wanting to ruin constantly and destroy, a world system that's trying to seduce us away oh so subtly from the way of truth. The false teachers abounding, our own passions rising up and oftentimes destroying us more than they help. Help us, Lord, to love You, to love truth, to show fervent charity among ourselves. Help us to remember who's holding who. That Your right hand upholds us. And we thank You, Lord, even this late hour for the local church, the body of Christ which You've ordained. We thank You, Lord, that Your wisdom is perfect and there is no better plan. Help us to walk in it. In Jesus' name, Amen.